Good morning, Connecticut, and to our friends across the sound. It's John Voquette, Director of Public Affairs for Connoisseur Media. Thanks for tuning in to our award-winning public affairs program, For the People, bringing you even more information to help address concerns in our communities tied to youth, the economy, public health and safety, aging, education, and the environment. This morning, we'll bring you the second half of our show, coming to you from Connecticut's Northeast Organic Farming Association Winter Conference at WestCon. We'll hear from Connecticut's Agricultural Commissioner and a number of the partner organizations participating and educating attendees about products, services, and trends tied to organic gardening and farming, including where to find the best seeds to get your first or your latest garden growing, how to learn more about generating your own electricity from solar power, and the important work going on at UConn School of Agriculture. We'll also have a little chat about slow foods. We'll be back with these segments and more on the award-winning For the People with me, John Voquette, right after this news. Remember, American Arts Marketing just announced a call for young artists to submit work for display and sale at the American Fine Craft Show to benefit the Connecticut Children's Medical Center. The creative works will be on display at the XL Center on April 8th, 9th, and 10th. The children's artwork should be based on the theme Family Portrait. Entries will be divided into two groups, 8th grade and under, and grades 9 through 12. All Connecticut middle and high schoolers are encouraged to submit entries, which should be delivered via UPS, FedEx, or Postal Service, or in person to 242 Newbury Street in Hartford, no later than Thursday, April 7th. For information, call 860-956-9500 or visit AmericanFineCraftsShowHartford.com. We are here at the NOFA Winter Conference at Western Connecticut State University and ran into a dear old friend uh, who has been a guest on the award-winning For the People a number of times over the years, uh, Commissioner of Agriculture here in the state of Connecticut, Steve Rovitsky. Steve, good to see you. Very good to see you as well. So um, the last time, uh, past few times we've talked, we've been talking about how much more of a spotlight that Connecticut agriculture and aquaculture has been getting uh, over the past few years um, for a couple of important reasons. First, for the expanding amount of revenue that agriculture is bringing to the state of Connecticut, and also uh, the importance that family farms and and large-scale farms play in the role of conserving uh, uh, residential, or I'm sorry, land in favor of residential yeah. development. Um, tell us a little bit about the latest out of your office in terms of uh, how farmers are really uh, helping to sustain uh, Connecticut's economy. Well, there's been, we've experienced a great growth in farming and agriculture in the state of Connecticut. The last ag census that the USDA Uh, completed showed a 22% growth in the number of farms in the state, uh, which is higher than any other state in New England. So this is a great time to be engaged and involved in farming and agriculture. And this is really driven by consumers because people want to know where their food comes from and they want to know their farmer. And so when you live in a state as small as Connecticut, we can really do that in a big way. And we have more people coming into farming and agriculture. We showed a a great growth in new and beginning farmers and a growth in the number of farms that are where the principal uh, 
person in the business is a female. So okay. there's there are all kinds of cool right, things right. happening well, in farming. Well, and well NOFA mm-hmm. had had led uh, workshops and training specifically under I think a federal grant program a year or two ago to get more women involved in uh, in small farms. Uh, the state has also provided some uh, resource to that extent, hasn't it? We have uh, a number of tools in our toolbox. The Department of Agriculture gives grants to uh, farmers to diversify, uh, to uh, expand their operations in various ways. And one of the one of the big issues that we're facing uh, is with the Congress passing the Food Safety Modernization Act, mm-hmm. FISMA, and we're working very hard to assist farmers in uh, making changes in their operations and how they bring product from the fields and wash it and pack it and cool it. Um, We're able to provide grants through the Community Investment Act uh, Mm -hmm. that the state of Connecticut passed many years ago. And uh, we're we're here to help. And we want to see this upward spiral of farming and agriculture continue here Mm -hmm. in Connecticut. And it's great to be here at the NOFA NOFA Winter Conference. Uh, As you can see there are uh, literally hundreds of people here so it's it's an exciting time to be in farming and like everybody um, I enjoyed eating great food and I want to know my farmer and I want to make sure that I buy as much Connecticut grown as I possibly can. Yeah. Uh, the, The thing that I think I've been noticing a lot is the expansion of these not just small boutique farms but but farms that are just growing one or two things and sometimes those one or two things are maybe exotic to the average person but they're they're staples uh, significantly consumed staples of certain ethnic uh, diets so it is very very important that farmers know who their consumers or potential consumers are and uh, we've worked with the uh, Connecticut Ag Experiment Station uh, and the University of Connecticut in a number of uh, ways to try to identify specific crops uh, that folks uh, knew, exciting crops that may not be uh, ones that you and I recognize Mm -hmm. growing up here um, and trying to cater to the various populations that we have here in the state of Connecticut. And uh, so there, there's an opportunity. The other opportunity is to, to grow more. We saw an explosion in the numbers of farmers' markets over time. Mm. We have over 125 farmers' markets here in Connecticut that are certified. Uh, but the next greatest place that we see growth is to get food into schools, mm. into colleges, universities, institutional. hospitals, institutional yeah. buying. Uh, and that would allow our farmers to be able to scale up and that it not only scale up what they grow, but the more important thing is to scale up what they earn because we want our farms to be economically viable. Yeah. From a logistical standpoint, how challenging is that to make happen given the fact that, you know, like airports uh, and other large-scale institutions, um, a lot of these schools in Connecticut, are uh, their food services run by a company that may be you know, half a country away and, and uh, very corporate. 
It's a very good question, and that is one of the big challenges. Not to paint you into a corner with one good question. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a great question because that is one of the major challenges that we face, and we're trying to work with uh, local food service uh, people at the, at the school district level oh, to okay. sort of break outside the big contract um, scenarios that have been painted over Just time. make a little room for local. Make, some, make a lot of room for a local, you know, it, it, here's, here's the bottom line. If we could get just a small piece of the contracts, for instance, the state of Connecticut spends about $20 million a year on food through the Department of Administrative Services. Okay. If we were to break off just a portion of those contracts and dedicate that to making sure that that food is, is procured locally and making sure that the farmer that the farmer gets a piece of the pie. It's one thing to give a, a benefit or a bonus to the aggregator for buying local. It's mm-hmm. another thing to make sure that that, that, it, that dollar advantage Absolutely. actually makes it down to the farmer right. and the farm family. Excellent. Uh, one more quick question. I'll let you go. Uh, uh, probably one of the first uh, commissioners I was uh, had a great relationship with was uh, Shirley Ferris. Uh, she still runs, our family still runs, I guess, the last uh, dairy operation in Fairfield County. Um, what uh, do you have to say to help the uh, fourth, fifth, sixth generation large-scale Connecticut family farmers uh, kind of keep the faith, too? I mean, uh, they've got to be seeing and feeling the excitement as these uh, smaller farms pop up around them, especially in the more uh, suburban and rural areas of the state. Um, Are there also uh, things to be celebrated beyond just the longevity of these family farms and these larger, uh, more institutional farms in Connecticut? The first thing I want to say is I have a special place in my heart for Commissioner Ferris. Um, she, she hired me uh, at the, to the Department of Agriculture, and uh, as we discussed a, a, a little while ago, um, I'm a cancer survivor, yeah. and she was the best boss. Um, she, she really helped me. Uh, it, she helped me through a tough time, and yeah. I thank her a lot for that. And oh, she did yeah. a lot of great work as commissioner. And one of the things that, uh, that we have focused on for quite a bit of time now is farmland protection and uh, buying development rights on farms, voluntary program where farm owners sell their development rights uh, to the state. And then in doing that, those, those lands are kept available for production agriculture for, forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other things that the department has done for quite some time is to partner uh, with municipalities and land trusts. Uh, they own quite a bit of land uh, across, across the state, and good farmland, quite frankly, and farmers can help them uh, steward their lands, mm-hmm. uh, farming portions of those protected landscapes and bringing them into active production. So there are opportunities to provide access to new and beginning farmers for existing farmers who want to expand their production by getting them onto lands that exist all across the state in all eight counties uh, of Connecticut. So there, there are growing opportunities. There, there, land is expensive in Connecticut, so we want to make sure that we provide 
access to good land for people who want to farm. Excellent. And to say nothing of the, uh, the greater protections of the aquifers and uh, the uh, inadvertent limiting of residential development, which has uh, multipliers that uh, often are uh, uh, cost more costly to taxpayers than if they, there was an alternative of uh, those lands being either protected as potential farming areas or uh, who lease out to farmers, I guess. There's a, that's that's a, a kind of a movement that has has a rich tradition in the United States, the, uh, you know, the kind of sub, sub-leasing of farmland for your own crops. Um, is a lot of that happening in Connecticut? It does. And if you look at the dairy industry specifically, most dairy farmers own about half the land they farm. So all of that other land that they're farming, planting corn, making hay, all of those lands are owned by somebody else mm. who then leases it to them and allows, mm. uh, allows them to access that ground. Mm. The same is true with now growing vegetable production, fruit production here in Connecticut. So we, we have a great opportunity to, to provide additional access to good quality land through the generosity and the good business decisions of landowners across the state. And mm. we, encourage, we encourage those folks who are not farmers but happen to own good land to uh, think about making those grounds available yeah. to, for farming and agriculture. And creating uh, and sustaining additional jobs here in Connecticut as well. You bet. So the, the last study that we uh, worked on with the University of Connecticut it, uh, indicated that um, agriculture contributes about $3.5 billion to the state's economy each year. And uh, a recent uh, update of job numbers indicates that agriculture contributes about uh, 28,000 jobs uh, in, here in the state of Connecticut. So agriculture uh, is a growing sector and an important sector in, in Connecticut's economy. And uh, an important and indulgent guest to talk about it, our Commissioner of Agriculture here in Connecticut, Steve Rovitsky, uh, a good long friend of ours here at the award-winning For the People, uh, coming to you today from the NOFA Winter Conference at Western Connecticut State University. Steve, always great to see you. Thanks for all your time. Good to see you. Thank you. Part of the fun of coming to the NOFA Winter Conference is running into interesting people, and uh, we talk a lot about agriculture and the satisfaction of eating what you grow, and uh, Chef Craig Jones is taking that to the next level with Crave Food Services. We welcome him here to Western Connecticut State University and the NOFA Winter Conference from Providence, and uh, they are here promoting a concept called What's Good. Uh, Greg, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, so my name is Craig Jones. I was a student at Johnson Wales University in 2009 to 2013. I graduated with my culinary degree with a concentration in sustainability and wellness. And I decided, uh, I decided later on in my career that I wanted to uh, start focusing more on sustainable food systems. And that's how I came to the work for the company Crave Food Services and, uh, and help uh, promote their new product, What's Good. So what does the food service company do? So as a company, we are, we are a tech-based company that also acts as a consulting team. 
Um, What's Good is an online ordering platform where wholesale buyers can actually go online to find local products and order directly from uh, local producers such as farmers, fishermen, and artisans. So tell, tell me um, how you see uh, the, the product and services that you are promoting uh, are, uh, are making a difference uh, both economically and environmentally to uh, some of your clients that you're working with. Well, uh, a lot of the farmers that we're working with um, are, are fairly new farmers that are looking to gain access into wholesale markets. Um, up until uh, very recently, their only real option for getting into those wholesale markets was either going to third-party distributors or going and knocking on the back doors of restaurants and, and trying to sell their products directly to chefs. Uh, what we've done is we've come out with a technology that basically makes the introduction for them and allows them to start selling more directly to these wholesale purchasers such as chefs, institutions, uh, school systems, um, and, and it really allows them to market their product the way that they want to market it, allows them to brand their business the way that they want to brand it, and, uh, and gives them access to sell directly to those different wholesale markets without having to go through third-party distribution. So I'm a, so say I'm a northern Connecticut a boutique farm specializing in, in a couple of different kinds of kale. So, and I think I have awesome kale, and I think that people would buy it in stores or um, would uh, restaurateurs and chefs like yourself would use my kale. So how do I get to know... Uh, your organization and get pulled into the What's Good network. So one of the things you can do right now is uh, is go to sourcewhatsgood.com. That takes you straight to our ordering platform, and you can hit sign up. Um, uh, signing up is free. Running the platform is free. Uh, we uh, generate revenue by taking 1.5% of sales, and that's just to keep our operation running. Besides that, uh, there's no monthly cost of using the platform. There's no uh, sign-up fees. Uh, so really what that does is that uh, by signing up for the platform, you get instantly connected with us and our networks of chefs and wholesale buyers, um, we then help facilitate the connections, so we find buyers in your area who might be looking for that specialty kale that you're growing, um, and then we facilitate that connection. So uh, the buyer then sends you a request to connect, almost like a Facebook friend request. You can then either accept or deny that request, depending on what kind of business it is and who you want to do business with. And then once you, uh, once you click that accept button, they then get access to your inventory, they get access to your prices, and they order directly on the platform. The order gets communicated and organized on your side. So the agreement on both ends is from the consumer end, they agree to patronize uh, the connections that they make through uh, usewhatsgood.com or the source network, and the uh, purveyor of the products agrees to pay the, uh, the nominal uh, transfer charge to make that acquaintance yes basically yeah so so uh so on the purveyor side it's it's a free platform to use and then on the purchaser side we basically based our pricing model off after like credit card transactions you know we view ourselves as as basically just an added tool uh in the arsenal of many tools that that purchasers and purveyors can use Mm -hmm. um and this is just uh, an added communication an added tool that they can they can sign up for to gain new access to new accounts or to just help them organize their existing accounts as well do you get to talk to the clients either on the provider end or on the consumer end um to be able to relate some sort of a um, an anecdote or a success story that you've already uh, been able to enjoy by bringing those two parties together? Uh, yeah, so we actually make, a, make it a point as a company to visit every single site that signs on to our website. Um, so, uh, so we go and visit every farm, uh, every producer that signs on, we make a point to go and visit them. 
um, and then we, we talk to them. One of the reasons why we call ourselves consultants is because we're not selling anything. We are offering a, a platform that they can use as a tool, again, to, in, their, in their tool chest of, of business, uh, of business uh, equipment that they have. You know, we're offering that same tool. So we go and we offer our, our services as consultants where we can help them with pricing strategies, marketing strategies. Um, we help facilitate those connections with the buyers as well. Excellent. So if I have any... Uh uh, any restaurateurs, any chefs, uh, anyone out there that's interested in uh, getting closer to the local source, sources of your foods, or uh, anyone out there who's uh, a grower or purveyor, uh, you want to get to know uh, Greg Jones and his partner uh, at, uh, at Grave Food Services and their organization, so they go to usewhatsgood.com. Yeah, uh, to learn more? Uh, yeah, sourcewhatsgood.com. You can go to learn more and to sign up. Uh, we, and if you sign up there, the, it gives you instant communication with our team, and we can start build it, helping to build your business from there. Greg Jones, he's telling you what's good. Uh, here from the NOFA Winter Conference at Western Connecticut State University. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. So uh, we're back on the floor here. Uh, uh, folks have been uh, hearing various stages of background noise. It's now lunch hour here at the NOFA Winter Conference at Western Connecticut State University. Uh, but some hearty souls have decided to uh, uh, forego their lunch in order to continue to network and meet folks here at the uh, NOFA Winter Conference. I'm now pleased to uh, talk with Mig Halpin. He's with a grassroots nonprofit called Slow Food Shoreline. Uh, and it really was the, uh, the little snails that attracted me uh, to, the, to the Slow Food booth. Uh, Mig, tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on with your organization. Uh, we're a nonprofit, uh, all volunteered organization, and we operate statewide. Uh, we try to organize events. Uh, multiple events throughout the year, but primarily during the, the warm and uh, you know, nicer months of the mm -hmm. year where we organize, uh, we do a cook-eat-share program at, at uh, farmer's markets across the state that educates children to the source of their food. We have them grind grain, uh, get eggs from farmers, and we have them cook pancakes to the, so they can see you know, from beginning to end uh, where their food comes from, and they'll see the vendors of the eggs and the milk and so forth. So they, they actually see the people producing the food and then the end product. We also do uh, programs celebrating items from the Ark of Taste, uh, which is uh, a heritage food program started by Slow Food USA that uh, identifies food products and, and, and produce that are uh, um, heritage foods from the region. So we celebrate... Uh, the last event we had was the uh, apple brandy at uh, Westford Distillers, which is uh, a product. Uh, we had an attempt this fall to do uh, the Long Island Oyster with Cops Island Oyster, but unfortunately it got rained out because of a storm. Uh, but these are the type of events that we're trying to organize and maintain and, and bring uh, the the attention to Connecticut farms and Connecticut products. So am I gathering correctly that Slow Food Shoreline is a... Uh, a uh, subsidiary or a, a, a section of a larger national organization? Uh, yes, it's, it's actually a, a subsidiary of Slow Food International, which was started in Italy, and then there's uh, Slow Food USA, and we are our chapter of Slow Food USA. Okay. 
So, um, so, what are a few things uh, historically? How long has the as uh, the uh, the chapter that you're affiliated with been uh, doing your good work? Uh, our chapter was started. I, do you know where it started? I, I, I've been on. I think I think in 2012. Okay. Um, relatively, uh, relatively new. Rel- to the relatively scene. new. They, when we started, there was actually uh, uh, Slow Food Hartford chapter, and that uh, dissolved shortly after Slow Food Shoreline was established, which is why we had the separate name. But now Slow Food Shoreline is the largest chapter in the state, and we, as such, we try to do events across the state. Okay. So I, I, I've, I, I've, I've actually heard of Slow Foods. Does that also uh, have a descriptor beyond your organization? Is, is uh, Slow Foods sort of the brand association with a particular type of uh, agricultural product? It, uh, it's somewhat, but also it's a philosophy. It's the antithesis of fast food. It's everything fast food isn't. Uh, it's local. It's seasonal. It's about taking your time to celebrate and enjoy food with friends and family. It's about you know supporting local farms, supporting urban and suburban agriculture and organic agriculture. So it's it's a it's it's a philosophy, but uh, it's rooted in the the concept of slow foods. So the whole the whole movement of uh, acclimating young people to the process of from seed to, to table, essentially, mm-hmm. has really been growing, uh, it seems, exponentially over the past five to ten years and, uh, and seems to be uh, quite successful. Yeah, we're, we're very pleased to see that. We, you know, there are a number of organizations here today that we share many of the core values of Slow Food, and we all, a lot of us know each other from different organizations, be it some of the farm uh, preserve people and Connecticut farmland. You know, we know, we know a lot of, we're, we're all friends, and we all have the same aim to support agriculture, but also to support a lifestyle that embraces quality, healthful food. Are you a, a farmer or a gardener? Where, did, where, did, where does your passion for this come from? Uh, I'm a gardener. Uh, I, I grow as much as I can. I live in Bethany and have a large large garden, and uh, that's probably where I spend most of my time for six months of the year. Uh, I work in New Haven for an architect, but uh, my passion is gardening and, and cooking you know really nice meals with friends mm. and enjoying local food and in the in the short relatively short few years that slow food shoreline has been in existence here in Connecticut um, how many uh, roughly uh, pe- how many f- folks are engaged uh, our mailing list is you know, dozens five, hundreds thousands thirteen. 1,300 on our mailing list. Uh, I mean, not everyone's necessarily a member, but sure. we're, we're, we encourage people to just follow us oh, and, yeah. and understand what we're doing. Yeah. In our monthly newsletter, we try to profile uh, a, a, a state farm yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and identify what people bring to the state, what people bring to the movement. Sure, and, sure. And, and certainly globally, there must be hundreds of thousands. Oh, yes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Slow Food International puts on an event every two years called Terra Madre, where they literally bring thousands of people from across the world to celebrate local food. Excellent. So how would people learn more about you to either join with the cause or to inquire about perhaps bringing your expertise into a local school or school district or neighborhood? Uh, we encourage people to visit our website at slowfoodshoreline.org. And on the site, they can contact me or any of the other board members, and we will respond and support as we're able. We are volunteers, so we have had calls to do programs, and 
you know, between day jobs, and but we, we try to support it as best as we can. Excellent. Uh, Meg Halpin is here at the NOFA Winter Conference at Western Connecticut State University. He represents Slow Food Shoreline, a grassroots nonprofit. We hope you'll uh, get in touch with them and learn more about the great work they're doing here throughout Connecticut uh, or perhaps get involved as a supporter to help the cause reach more young people and neighborhoods and communities. Thank you, Meg. Thank you very much. Do you love Connecticut? If you do, there are hundreds of nonprofit agencies, community groups, and grassroots causes that would love to have your support. You can learn about many of them through Love CT. Just go to our radio station website, hit the event guide tab, and click on to Love CT to help the many causes supported by Connoisseur Media. I'm Director of Public Affairs, John Voquette. We'll be back to the award-winning For the People, live from the floor at the Northeast Organic Farming Association Winter Conference at WestCon, right after this news. The Michael Vincent Sage Dragonheart Foundation is hosting its fourth annual fundraiser April 16th at the Two Roads Brewery in Stratford, featuring an open beer and wine bar, food, raffles, a silent auction, and guest speakers. The foundation provides life-saving AED, that's automatic defibrillators, that can prevent death by sudden cardiac arrest, which is currently the leading cause of cardiac-related death in the United States. You can get your tickets at defibandlive.org or at the door or to make an immediate tax-deductible donation to the MVS Dragonheart Foundation, go to defibandlive.org. So it's one thing to be a master gardener, but when you're also a master composter, you have twice as much good information to offer to listeners here. Uh, Deirdre Wallen is with us, as is Kim Reda. She's an intern, uh, and Deirdre is with the Yukon College of Agriculture, Health, and Natural Resources. And as we said, she's a master gardener and recently certified master composter. And you're here along with a colleague today, both doing a workshop and uh, meeting folks at the tabletop. Uh, at the Northeast Organic Farming Association Winter Conference at Western Connecticut State University. Uh, so, Deirdre, thanks for taking a few minutes to talk with us. Uh, we always try to include when we come and do these shows from NOFA conferences to make sure we talk to somebody about composting because it's something virtually every single person could do uh, no matter how large or small their, uh, their property is, right? Absolutely, and that's part of the Master Composter Program is we're trying to spread the word and educate and increase awareness about the benefits of composting. I like to really think of it as a great recycling effort. I think most of us are used to recycling our papers and our cans, and if we're not recycling our vegetable scraps and our coffee grounds and our eggshells, we're missing out. So that's what we're trying to increase participation in that aspect of recycling. So this is a move that I'm hearing more Connecticut municipalities are starting to follow. Uh, so you not only get the big rolling uh, trash can, you get the recycling bin for your cans and bottles and things, and then you get a little uh, kind of a, like a little mini dumpster that you put your food in. Yes, I believe Bridgewater has run recently a pilot program, and there's a much larger program. Do you remember what town it's in, Kim? It's in Manchester, as a matter of fact, with the Master Composter Program. That's one of our field trips, is we going to Manchester and seeing this incredible setup that they have, where they have 
probably acres of compost that, oh, okay. that they have available. So uh, we'll talk talk to folks um, that might be listening to the program through um, a little bit about why it's important to go that extra step and not just um, you know make sure you're designating the right stuff in the big bin and the medium-sized bin, but also now uh, looking to uh, further carry the effort into food waste. Sure. Well, one, if you're interested in gardening, you're making a wonderful product for yourself that you can use at home, whether you're making compost tea and using it on your house plants, or whether you're using actual compost out in your garden, in the ground, in raised beds, in containers. And then secondly, it reduces your carbon footprint. You're eliminating a large amount of garbage, quote, quote, garbage, that would have to be hauled off and dealt with. And once you start composting, I have a, on my kitchen counter, I keep a little bucket. And myself, my husband, and my son, who's 11, we all know now, you put your coffee grounds in there, you put your eggshells in there, you put your vegetable peels, and so forth. And it's really amazing how quickly you'll see a difference in how much you're not throwing out in the garbage now. So I have this little bucket on my counter. Once it fills up, I take it outside, and I have a garbage can compost system that I'm using right now. So you can use a basic Rubbermaid-style garbage can that has a latching hood on it. You drill holes throughout it, and then you start layering your vegetable scraps, some um, newspapers that you shred up, perhaps, or some leaves that you shred up, and you just keep layering that. So every week, at least once a week, probably more often, I'm throwing out my little kitchen countertop bucket into that system. Is compost so valued a resource that if a person wants to compost but don't have any reason to use it, that it's easy for them to find somebody else to give it to that'll put it to good work? You know, I think that's a good question, and a few people have asked me that today. I would have to imagine yes, and I'm not totally sure what to say, but start talking to other people. Go to your local extension office and talk to them as well. But I would think so. It really has a big impact on reducing what we're sending to our garbage landfills, and I would have to imagine there's someone out there that would want your compost. It's a really incredible addition to your garden uh, soil. And as you mentioned before we turned on the microphone, you're engaged with some larger scale composting initiatives also? Um, There are quite a few throughout. Myself, personally, I compost at home, and I also have started at my son's school. So they have a garbage can compost they're using now, and they also have a vermi compost that I have here at the table that they're using as well. So um, could people come to UConn for just the resources to get started, or do they have to actually be part of the academic program? No, there's plenty of opportunity to get the resources, and some of them I think may be online if they visit um, Ladybug. Yes. Right. So if they go to ladybug.ucon.edu, that's a fabulous website with lots of great information. Likewise, they can visit their local extension office. We have them throughout the state and talk to Master Gardeners staff those offices and get some information from them as well. So uh, we've talked a lot about composting, uh, but we will not neglect the Master Gardeners <laughs> program because um, it, that movement in Connecticut, it seems, has grown exponentially over the past couple of decades that I've been kind of checking in with the Master Gardeners. And I cannot believe how many 
landscapers and community garden club members and just people I run across in like um, home and garden shops and things like that who really proudly uh, carry that Master Gardener's designation. And I, I think a lot of people that may have heard of it don't realize how much that Master Gardeners actually give back by design to their own communities. Right. Well, that's a large part of that program is you're receiving education on a variety of topics. It's a lot of information, somewhat in a short amount of time. And then your give back, as you do, you go out and you volunteer in your community to share information that you have. And you also volunteer in your local extension office where people can stop into that office with questions. They can stop in with a plant ID or a plant problem. So there's a large effort throughout the state and other states as well with a master gardener sharing their knowledge. So, uh, and that is, a se- that is a completely separate program than becoming a master composter, or do you take knowledge that you already learned as a master gardener uh, to sort of uh, supplement as you take that next step to be a master composter? Well, I certainly think they connect well. I mean, to grow any plant, you have to have really great soil. You have to start at the ground, and your compost is going to be adding to what you have for soil. But they are separate programs, both run through UConn, And they both do have that component where you are receiving education at a fairly good price, and then you are going out to spread the word to your community. Ladybug.uconn.edu is the website to get you started if you're interested in resources or to find out more about Master Gardener programs in your region or the Master Composting Program. Uh, We want to thank our, uh, our visitor, Deirdre Wallen, and her cohort here. Kim Retta, who is an intern uh, from the Yukon College of Agriculture, Health, and Natural Resources from the NOFA Winter Conference here at Western Connecticut State University. Deirdre, Kim, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Continuing our trek through the NOFA Winter Conference here at Western Connecticut State University, I have run into the uh, somewhat austere booth and uh, fellow allergy sufferer, Tim Haidu. He is with Dale's Dollar Plants of Stratford. He tells me the business is named after his mom. Uh, So, Tim, what do you got going uh, here today? Well, we're doing some uh, plants that we grow in our greenhouse, but also some big racks of seeds. Um, We carry the botanical interest line of seeds. And uh, right now is the ideal time to plant seeds for spring. And uh, I guess uh, uh, the first question I'd ask is, how late is too late to put seeds in the ground, uh, you know, to be able to uh, get some bounty for the kitchen table? Well, right now, a lot of your summer vegetables, you're starting inside. Uh, Right now, you're just starting the very first seeds for outside. So uh, you have quite a while. Uh, People can plant through all the way through June, and depending on what varieties you're planting, you may plant later than that for a winter harvest the next year. What are some popular kind of quick turnaround plants that, um, you know, if people decide that's what they like on their kitchen table, um, they, could, they could grow sooner or later, sooner than later from seeds? Some of the, the really quick plants that you can get to take off are uh, radishes. You have uh, lettuces. The lettuce you can have in three weeks, some varieties. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's a really, really quick plant, especially if you're growing it for the, uh, you know, the rocket arugula kind of mm, stuff. Mm. Is, the, is, is Connecticut's um, soil 
so diverse that uh, you'll have better luck growing certain types of vegetables down near the coastline versus, say, in the river valleys or the highlands uh, up in the north and uh, northeastern and western corners? Well, Connecticut does have a lot of different types of soil in it. Um, so one of the things that I like to tell people uh, as a master gardener, because I've gone through their program, oh, great. is that to take your soil and get it tested at UConn, uh, for their at their soil lab so that you can really find out what your soil is good for and uh, then plant accordingly or amend it so that you can plant accordingly. Oh, okay. And we were talking a little bit before we turned on the microphone, and, and it sounds like that's a similar approach to how you tell people to get started growing. It's not about what's easy or more challenging. It's really about what they want to either feed their families, have on their plates, or... Um, the types of flowers they might want to have in their yard. Absolutely. Um, zucchinis are really easy to grow, but if you hate zucchini, there's no point in growing it. Right, right. Well, let's start with flowers. Um, w- w- tell me a little bit about the uh, diversity of, uh, are all these, or most of these, um, like native-friendly or uh, non-invasive? We do a lot of, uh, of native-friendly flowers, um, and one of the things we like to do uh, that botanical interest does really well is they grow a lot of um, heirloom varieties of plants, which are an heirloom is defined as a seed that's been in production for 50 years or more. Okay. A lot of them are a lot older than that. And um, so, what are what are some of the ones that uh, you you find are uh, are quite popular uh, for folks uh, that you're selling to at, at, at your place in Stratford? Some of our most popular flowers are the sunflowers. We have all different kinds, whether they're ornamental or the great big mammoth sunflowers with the edible seeds that either you or the birds can eat. Um, we also do morning glories. People like zinnias a lot. Uh, sweet alyssum for around your garden beds. A lot of different types. And I'm seeing here now that you can actually uh, grow your own potatoes in some sort of a, a, a bag and, and not even putting them. So that means like if, if you don't have a yard or they won't let you put any kind of garden in a yard, you could just uh, you know, purchase a product like this and uh, grow your own potatoes just out on the stoop or out on the deck? That's absolutely correct. Uh, potatoes will grow in a bag. You can put them in a tire, uh, a bale of hay. There's a lot of ways to grow potatoes where you don't necessarily need to have acreage to put them in the dirt. And how about fertil? Uh, we have some fertilizer here, or some plant, uh, some starting uh, soil. Yeah, we uh, we have kelp meal. Um, we have we make our own organic soil, and it's a uh, it's a really nice blend of uh, peat moss and perlite sand. We throw some green sand in, so you get the potassium in it. And uh, we also uh, what else do we put in? Some kelp meal. And the kelp meal is really good because it's uh, seaweed-based. Oh, okay. So it, it, does it have unique nutrients that are uh, um, uh, particularly good for starting seeds? Oh, yeah. Seaweed is great for plants, uh, all types of plants. And the, uh, the seaweed has all the micronutrients that, um, that seawater would have in it. And uh, if you take the seaweed and liquefy it, you also get all of the plant growth hormones that are kind of volatile organic compounds that you can't get uh, otherwise for yeah. your plants. I also noticed over here this um, something you're selling uh, looks like um, uh, like a birdhouse, but it's it's not big enough to be a birdhouse in that tiny little uh, envelope. Uh, is that a seed that you grow that becomes a birdhouse, Tim? Yeah, well, that's, um, it's called a birdhouse gourd. 
and uh, you grow it, and it's a gourd, and then you can eventually hollow it out and hang it in your tree to have a natural birdhouse. Excellent. And does that is uh, is that really like challenging to grow or uh, you know morph into that practical uh, kind of natural feature for your yard or garden? Most gourds, uh, squash, and pumpkins in general are very easy to grow. One of the problems that they have around here is that there's a lot of powdery mildew, and uh, you could actually treat that yourself uh, with a you know a mild solution of either milk or baking soda, and it'll change the pH on the leaves and get rid of the powdery mildew. Excellent. Um, let's get back to uh, to some of the other uh, vegetables that are available here. Um, what are some of the ones that, uh, I mean, I, I know there's seasonal vegetables. Are there actually uh, vegetables that people can put in the ground as late as like uh, August or September and still get some uh, bounty for the kitchen table going into the the fall and the Thanksgiving season? Yeah, when you're talking about a a fall planting for the crops, you're going to look at things like Swiss chard and kale that'll that'll be really good for cold-hardy plants. Um, They'll go into the winter and actually they get sweeter when the cold comes out. So after your first frost is the best time for those plants. Great. Well, before we wrap up with you, um, uh, one, if you could, as a master gardener too, which is uh, great, I'm glad I ran into you because you've got a lot more expertise than beyond just kind of what you're doing here. Um, I, I guess what keeps a lot of people from starting a home garden is the idea that it's going to be like a lot of work or you know, it's just easier to drive down to the store and go into the bins and get it. But I, I, I try to reinforce to people when I'm just having the conversation that just the incredible amount of uh, uh, travel that most of the grocery, even even when they're being advertised as locally grown or locally sourced, there's still a lot of stuff that goes on that's really bad for the environment before even those organic vegetables hit the shelves of the big box super uh, superstores, right? Yeah, um, a lot of, I mean, I've been told before that the most environmentally friendly thing you can do for, for, say, carbon footprint or anything like that is to start your own garden because these plants travel, or vegetables travel so far just to get to the stores. And, uh, and one other thing that I like to point out is that when you're gardening, it may be a little bit of work, but it's not really work when you think about it. It's an enjoyable pastime. You get to sit there and sit in your own yard or your back porch or whatever. You plant the seeds, you watch them grow, you water them. And there's just a um, kind of a connection to the land that you develop, and and you feel more uh, more in sync with nature when yeah. you're growing. It's things. almost like cooking for yourself. When you grow your own food, it just uh, tastes better, and it doesn't seem like work. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, uh, Tim Haidu is with uh, Dale's Dollar Plants of Stratford, and uh, Tim, if folks want to learn more about what you're doing down in Stratford, how do they get in touch? Well, um, usually we don't do very much in the way of uh, social media or anything like that, but the next event that we'll be at is going to be Fairfield's Earth Day uh, celebration uh, in Fairfield, Connecticut on April 30th. Okay, super. Um, Is there a website or anything? Are you guys completely organic when it comes to your your, your marketing? Local sales to people that are around us. Where are you located? Uh, We're on Patterson Avenue in Stratford. Excellent. And you're in the phone book? No. Oh, wow. We're not even in the phone book. Oh, so people got to find you. That's pretty exciting. Find us if you like. Excellent. Um, All right. Well, a little adventure to get the day started here at the uh, NOFA. 
winter conference at Western Connecticut State University. Uh, thank you, Tim Haidu of Dale's Dollar Plants of Stratford. Go find them at the Fairfield. It's at, it's at the Fairfield Farmers Market. Fairfield, no, Fairfield's Earth Day celebration. It's at the high school in Fairfield on April thirtieth. Excellent. Thanks, Tim. Continuing our adventures here at the NOFA Winter Conference from Western Connecticut State University, I've run into a, uh, another great vendor, uh, Direct Energy Solar, and Nicole Sanchez is here. And the reason why, in chatting with her, I felt we should bring her to you listeners is that in her capacity with Direct Energy Solar, she helps clients who come to the company to determine whether or not they may qualify and benefit from solar power and takes them all the way through to the point essentially where the workmen show up to do the installations. So, um, so Nicole, I guess the first thing I'd like to ask is, do you get a lot of people that think that they might like to get into solar, but they absolutely don't believe that they either have the, the location or the logistics or, um, you know, it just sounds too far-fetched for them? Yeah, so now it's actually a lot easier to go solar than in the past. Um, so we have a bunch of different financing options. We, If someone wants to purchase a solar system, they can buy with us. Um, or we have a PPA, which is a power purchase agreement. So a customer would put no money down. Um, we would put solar on their roof, and they'd uh, pay a lower utility rate for the solar power from their roof as opposed to coming from the utility. So it's a lot easier and cheaper to go green now. Um, If you have a south-facing roof, those are ideal conditions to get most solar energy. And um, most people think that their roof might not be oriented in the right way, but we can install on east and west-facing roofs and still produce a lot of power now with the panels we have. So for people that don't want to buy their own system, do they get the benefit by um, offsetting the full rate that they pay for their electricity and offsetting the cost for the system with um, surplus energy that then gets sold back to the uh, provider or the generator? So if you purchase a system, then the extra power that you produce, you get credited from your utility. So um, you're still connected to Eversource or UI, um, but you have a net meter that's recording how much power you're producing and sending back out to the grid and how much you're using from the grid. Um, So during the day when you're producing solar energy, that's going out to the grid. If at night when you're not producing as much energy from your solar panels... Um, you pull from the grid, but you get credited from what you put out to the grid. Yeah, the offset, yeah. essentially, right? Yeah. So we designed the system so that you're balancing that out. Excellent. So um, you talked a, a lot about how uh, much easier it is today than even like five or ten years ago to get into solar. Um, tell me a little bit about the state-of-the-art or near-future solar panel and uh, processing technology, because um, 
really probably the last time I saw the nuts and bolts of a solar solar uh, power generation system. I remember the guy bringing me into his garage and showing me like a configuration that was about a refrigerator and a half worth of stuff all clustered around uh, batteries and storage and stuff. Um, like computers and like we talked about the the phones that we use now that have all this uh, collateral stuff in it has the the size and scope of how invasive a solar system has to be to your household come down absolutely so um, the panels themselves have gotten more efficient um, but also the equipment that you need to convert the energy from DC to AC that you can use in your home has gotten a lot smaller and efficient too, and smarter. Um, so we use Enphase microinverters and solar edge optimizers. Mm-hmm. Both of them um, connect to the back of the panel directly, so it cuts down on a lot of the equipment that you need on the ground. Um, They also both have a website that the customer can see exactly what they're producing day-to-day and panel-by-panel, which is amazing. Yeah, so So they can they can actually administer and 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 sort of keep an eye on uh, uh, Their entire production, but I I'm, I'm now kind of Connecting in my head, but that's also good to determine whether or not you happen to have a panel that might be mechanically failing or something, you know exactly which one suddenly is not producing, like all the ones around it? Exactly. So most of the panels are actually pretty sturdy. There aren't any moving parts to it, mm. so it's not going to fail as often as in uh, mechanical equipment. Yeah. Um, but a good use of the panel by panel is if you have something that's shading part of the solar panels, you're going to see that and be able to say oh, are there some leaves on this side of my system? Oh, okay. You Maybe can trim a couple branches off to make yeah. the panel more efficient. Exactly. Right. Well, so before we wrap up with you then, let's take it all the way back down to the beginning and um, just kind of take a couple minutes to walk us through the process of what a potential um, direct energy solar client might experience once they make the phone call or the inquiry or the website contact um, where do they, w- w- what would they expect to experience from there and up to the point where they've made a commitment and the truck is driving into the driveway to begin the installation? Yeah, so um, I'm a project lead, so we guide the customer from when they sign up with us in, through all the way to the installation. Um, so there's a little bit of background work that goes on before we can install the panels. Uh, so we're applying for permits with the town. We're applying for net metering with the utility. Um, And once we have both of those, then we have our own in-house installing installation and electrical teams come out. And they work together um, to run the conduit down to your meter and to install the panels on your house. So part of all that service that you actually do for the client is getting all of that uh, permitting and such all taken care of? Absolutely. So it's a white glove service. You don't need to worry about the paperwork or anything like that after you sign up with us. We take care of all the permitting. Uh, So potentially, I guess I would ask the same question as maybe a a potential client. Um, Is the technology such today that, uh, you know, a modest, you know, system that's not going to look like it's all over my property... Uh, in terms of quantity, still um, 
essentially produce almost or all of my electrical power with the possibility of also generating additional surplus that I can actually sell back into the grid? Absolutely. Um, And so one of the main things that your solar consultant will ask for is your utility bill because we want to design the system for your particular roof and also your usage throughout the year. Excellent. We'll let people know where to go if they have questions. So you can go to directenergysolar.com or you can give us a call at our Middletown, Connecticut office. Excellent. We appreciate you taking a few minutes with us. Nicole Sanchez is with Direct Energy Solar here at the Connecticut NOFO Winter Conference at Western Connecticut State University. Uh, Great to chat with you, Nicole. Thanks, sir. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You've been listening to our award-winning public affairs program for the people. The opinions expressed on this broadcast represent those of our guests and hosts and do not necessarily represent the views of Connoisseur Media. If you have a suggestion for a guest, an issue, or a community calendar item relevant to the audiences and communities we serve, you must make your request for consideration in writing via email to me at john.vocat at connoisseurct.com. We do not accept pitches or requests for coverage by phone. Remember, no part of this program may be copied, disseminated, or rebroadcast. Our public file reflecting the full scope of our station's responsiveness to critical issues in the communities we serve can be viewed upon request weekdays during normal business hours at 869 Blue Hills Avenue in Bloomfield. Our theme music is by Rick Miller and Scott's with original music by Noel Vayette. I'm John Vauquet, Director of Public Affairs for Connoisseur Media. Join us again at this time next week for another installment of the award-winning For the People. Or listen to this and other For the People podcasts under the podcast tab at our radio station website or on iTunes. Until this time next week, thanks for listening.